Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin, your host, and I'll be talking today with Margie Ulbrich. Margie is a collaborative family lawyer, relationship counselor, and psychotherapist who makes extensive use of mindfulness skills in her work with couples, individuals, and families. She's a co-author, along with Dr. Richard Chambers, of Mindful Relationships, Creating Genuine Connection with Ourselves and Others. Welcome to the show, Margie. Thank you very much, Virginia. It's lovely to be here with you. It's great to have you here. I really enjoyed reading your book. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. So let's start with a definition. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is living in the present and acting with awareness, and it refers to being in the moment and also to a range of attention training practices which we can learn to cultivate a mindfulness practices. Um, John Kabat-Zinn, who's most famous for his work in, in pioneering this whole development of mindfulness, defines it as paying attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. And we also like to add that it's paying attention by engaging in the senses and in the body. Okay. I think of mindfulness as having its roots in Buddhist teachings. Is that correct? Um, It's being taken up very much by Buddhist teachings, but in fact, I think that it's true to say that when we really understand the depth of mindfulness and its capacity to connect us with something much larger than ourselves with a state of awareness that expands us outwards into a more limitless experience of nature and um, nature and our environment and, and the whole spiritual realm. I think it goes back, you know, as well in the the mystics and the um, many other spiritual traditions. I think it's actually probably at the heart of many, many traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, is your definition of mindfulness or your view of mindfulness different from what be, might be more familiar to a lot of my listeners? It is, Virginia. We talk in the book about mindfulness as relationship. And so um, often mindfulness is spoken about as a something that we do in order to achieve something or to cultivate a, a practice, which I've just said, which is true. But also we want to expand the idea that mindfulness is something you do to achieve a result. Um, we, we think that's a little bit too narrow. And we start with the idea that being mindful starts with the relationship that we have with ourselves and how we relate to our own experience. You know, we treat ourselves with such harshness and we judge ourselves as wrong, make ourselves bad, and that inevitably reflects in our relationships. So we, we say true intimacy starts with ourselves and it requires being able to be with and sense into our own experience what we notice there, and only then can we begin to be truly intimate with others. I'm curious, how did you come to have an interest in this field? It's developed very naturally, Virginia. I think um, I've been working as a therapist now for many, many years. And in my work as a psychotherapist, what I do is help people become more aware. And it just seems that talking and talk therapy, although it's very useful, it it seems that it has some limitations and, and helping people become aware of what's going on in their bodies and connecting into something that allows them to feel calmer and more relaxed and more connected to themselves physically, um, that seems to be at the root of understanding our states and our emotions. So it, it, mindfulness kind of has to just evolved for me very naturally out of my psychotherapy practice, I think, my understanding of it and my use of it now in my practice with my clients. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to say more about why 
paying attention, learning the skills to be mindful is something that seems to matter a lot at this point in history? Well, I think that we've never been more stressed, have we? We've got so much illness and so much disease that's that's so connected to stress. And I think also we're only just realising relatively recently of the impact of the mind on the body. And, um, you know, we look around at the state of our world and it's fairly tragic in many ways. And um, we can see that we really need to do do more and do whatever we can in our own spheres of influence, whether we're in, in government or whether we're in, in working in, in industries to help reduce some of the um, social problems that we have. We can all do things to improve our own sense of calm and well-being and that actually affects our relationships so we can have a ripple effect. It's a bit like Gandhi said, you know, be the change you want to see in the world and that's that's why we've written the book actually we felt that it was imperative that um, we, have, we have a message that everyone can do their bit everybody can do something in, in this environment that we're living in to create a more mindful planet mm-hmm. well you said that mindfulness as you understand it begins with awareness of yourself uh, with paying attention to your senses and and the information that they bring to you. Um, Would you like to elaborate on that a little bit? If this were my first lesson, I knew nothing about mindfulness and I wanted to learn, what would you uh, advise me to do? All right. Well, I would take you through a, um, a lovely grounding exercise and I would just you know, spend a little bit of time helping you um, become present now in the moment and, and be with yourself right now and uh, let it go of, you know, whatever's been going on in the day before getting to where you've got to. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and, then, and then take some time to bring your attention from outside of you inside. So paying attention to what you notice about your breathing not necessarily trying to change it or do anything to it, but just paying attention to what you might be sensing, any kind of sensations inside your body. And some people find it very difficult to pay attention to what they're experiencing in their body, and and um, that can be something that develops over time. But usually when we slow ourselves down enough, even if we've known nothing about this and paid no attention at all previously, we can start paying attention to our breath and becoming a lot more present and calm in our in our bodies and a lot more able to get this new experience for many people just being here right in the moment right now rather than you know worried about the past or worried about the future which is what so many of us do so much of the time mhm um i'm struggling with this a little bit because i think i have some understanding of what you're saying and i'm trying to put myself in the position of a listener who's less acquainted with this and wondering um how to explain to a person who hasn't experienced it how does paying attention to um to what's happening in your own body, paying attention to your breathing, paying attention to the sensations that you are experiencing and what's going, what's present in this moment. How does that make people calmer and um, more present to participate with others? Yeah, I, I can see that. I, I, it's, 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 without knowing anything about it, it's a big stretch, isn't it? And the best way actually is to experience it, to actually, um, you know, it's, it's a bit like you say, don't take anything on face value, don't believe the, the, um, the, the rational and the intellectual, but, but practice it and see for yourself. So I think the best answer to your question is that by just slowing down, and being in the moment and paying that attention with an attitude of curiosity and, and friendliness and non-judgmental awareness, you know, checking in, well, what's going, in with, what's going on with me right now? What am I experiencing right now? And then having the capacity to 
not judge that, not be harsh with that, but just hold that, just to actually be curious and say, oh, I'm actually feeling a bit frightened or there's some, some anger here or there's some some sadness here or whatever emotion it might be. And it's not, not always negative. We can we hold all of our parts with friendliness. But being able to do that reduces our reactivity. So when we're aware of it and when we can actually be with it and hold it in a place of presence. We don't need to act out of it. So we don't need to then um, go into automatic pilot and the default mode where we are just reactive or, or acting out our anger. Or We can start to be curious about, oh, well, what might be making me angry? And we might look down below that and understand that there might be boundaries that are being crossed or there might be that might be a cover for some other emotion that's lying underneath that. So what it does is it, it helps us be more and more and more aware. And when we're more aware, we have a lot more capacity for choice about how we act and what we do and how we feel. We don't need to be overwhelmed by the feelings. We don't need to be run by them or driven by them. We can actually allow them to be there and then have more choice about what we want to do. And ultimately, it, it gives us a greater sense of peace. It really reduces anxiety because if a lot of anxiety is about fear and about fighting what it is that's going on or fighting what we are feeling. So if we slow down and pay attention and breathe and breathe into whatever it is that we're experiencing, it's actually impossible to be anxious and to be breathing deeply at the same time. Does that Thank you. Does that help a bit more? Yeah, thank you. That was that was very good. Uh, that was the part that was missing, that as you're paying attention to what's going on inside yourself, you're doing that with an attitude of curiosity and friendliness, and you're choosing not to make any judgments about it. You're just noticing. That's it. That's it. And that's a very important part. It's, it's noticing and um, not making the judgments. And even, even when we do make the judgments, noticing that we're making the judgments and, and yes. coming into a greater awareness of how harshly we treat ourselves and, and how much we judge ourselves because we, we, I think we that's do. the nature of the human condition. We do. Um, and, and, and sometimes when you notice that that's what you're doing, you can choose just to let it go. That's right. Yeah. All right. We are going to take a break now. And when we come back, I will be talking more with Margie Ulbrich about how being mindful affects not only your physical and mental and spiritual well-being, but also your relationships with other people in your family. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, Visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org.
You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radioshow at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. I'm Dr. Virginia Collin, welcoming you back to Family Matters. I'm talking today with Margie Ulbrich, co-author of Mindful Relationships, Creating Genuine Connection with Ourselves and Others. So before break, we were talking about creating genuine connection with yourself, and I've kind of glossed over about how much that does for you just for yourself, and maybe we'll have time to come back to that. But I think I want to move to what Margie uh, writes so well about that other people have given less attention to, and that's how you carry this mindfulness into your relationships with other people and how that affects the relationships. So let's start with intimate relationships, Margie. Um, what happens? What do you see people doing, learning to do and doing, and, and what are the experiences as a result of that? Um, but you know, what I see is that, is that people can, it, it gives them a whole new, fresh approach, actually, to look, about, look at their own relationships. When they start to realize that they've been quite cut off from themselves and therefore cut off from their partner, they haven't really, you know, we're often not aware of what we're not aware of. We can't be, can we? So that comes as quite a surprise. And then when they start to develop more mindful attitudes, to, to bring these attitudes of friendliness, compassion and gentleness into relating to their own experience and to relating to their partner, it reduces so much of the judgment, so much of the blame and the criticism and the negativity that can be in, in the cycle. And... They start to be able to listen to each other more compassionately, to develop more empathy, and to actually um, create space to allow them each person to speak from their heart is something I do in, in my therapy, and that works beautifully because people actually then get the chance to really practice deep listening skills and to be able to practice speaking up for themselves because many people are not very good at that necessarily. It's often easier just to blame someone else rather than to actually go to, well, what's my part in this? So bringing mindfulness into the couple relationship has been very powerful for me in my work, and I'm finding people benefit from it enormously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as a family mediator, that's certainly something that I also see, that a uh, a lot of couples have not learned to listen to each other well or to speak up for themselves very well in the relationship. So being able to do that with compassion and empathy, um, that'll mean you don't need the family mediator anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be lovely, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. I'd be happy to put put myself out of a job that way. Yes. Yes. Is it easy for people once they've learned, um, you know, to practice being mindful within themselves. It, is it easy for people to learn to carry that into a relationship? Look, I have to say that some people find it easier than others, but no, I don't think it's easy. Um, you know, I think it takes a lot of conscious commitment and conscious choice. and keep, It's like any new habit, I guess. You know, when we've been socialized and conditioned into something for many, many years and we're so used to being a certain way, it, it can be very hard to break old habits. But the more we practice it, the easier it gets. And it does become something that I think we start to do much more naturally when we've started to be able to get a handle on reducing our own reactivity and and changing out of those default automatic patterns. So I think Mm -hmm. it definitely gets easier with time and it gets easier, um, you know, when you've got a therapist or someone who can work with you to, to assist you to kind of bring these habits into the more automatic, natural way of being in your relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens when people try to bring this habit of mindfulness into their roles as parents? Um, I've actually found it to be 
really impactful, Virginia. I think that um, for some parents, not all, but for some parents, they um, have not really been able up until now to when they start doing this to actually think about their children as individuals with their own emotions and their own feelings. And I had one client um, who I'll call Bob who came to see me and had a lot of fear around his teenage daughter. And through practicing some of these skills and, and sensing into his own awareness and, and being able to hold his own fear and discover and be able to even just sort of name and know what his fears were about, he realized that he had a lot of baggage from his past family of origin and as we we all have our own histories and our own baggage. But that was impacting how he was treating his daughter. And she was quite rebellious and she, she was quite rude to him and quite disrespectful and he was very indignant about that, which, you know, I could understand. But he started to bring this idea of listening and listening to her and being curious and giving her space to speak and giving her space to express whatever she might need to express in a respectful way. And that had a radical effect on, on their relationship. And instead of actually um, seeing, seeing her through these sort of kind of habitual patterns, you know, she's not working, she's not doing this, she's not doing the right thing, she's not studying hard enough, he started to find other ways to connect with her and look, looked at her with, with, from a new perspective, really, and um, their relationship was improved enormously. They ended up taking a trip into Central Australia and um, had a lovely time together. Where previously, you know, they hadn't been talking. So um, that was a that was a really wonderful story of how mindfulness really really helped transform their relationship and then their family. Because it, of course, when one relationship in the family is not going well, it impacts the whole family. Mm-hmm. That's a nice example because you had both things there, the father becoming more aware of what was going on inside him and then making the space, you know, to be mindful and present and listen to what's going on with his daughter. Absolutely. And what he had been doing previously was any time that he spent with her was always, you know, about study and she wasn't studying hard enough and he was a very intellectual and bright man and he wanted to help her. But... He had great intentions, um, but that was actually just driving her further and further away. And and once he could just let go of that, um, she she naturally, you know, as often happens, um, didn't need to fight him anymore on that. And and uh, eventually, she kind of took some responsibility and some interest in her own study. So it was it was a really wonderful wonderful story. Oh, that's great. Um, okay. We have some more time. Uh, in your book, you talk, you, uh, you and Dr. Chambers talk about how uh, mindfulness can also be carried into relationships in the workplace and in the community. And as I mentioned, I kind of skipped over how mindfulness affects not only your psychological awareness about yourself, but your physical well-being and your, your spiritual awareness. Pick up anything you want from that. What would you like to say more about? Well, when we talk about this, this physical well-being, I think the um, the research is actually just phenomenal now. You know, it, it, initially mindfulness, there was you know some some um, hesitancy, and then there was there were lots of studies about um, impact on stress. But we now know that um, mindfulness affects a lot more than stress. You know, it affects aging, it affects the uh, um, diseases like anxiety, depression, Alzheimer's, you know, the, the whole idea that we can actually rewire our brains. I think this is one of the most exciting concepts recently in, in you know, neuroscience is that we can, we can really um, rewire our brains because we have use it or lose it brains and when we do something for the first time, neurons that were previously unconnected wire together into new neural pathways and so we literally can grow our brain like a muscle and you know that's, that's so exciting because we can actually have so much impact on our own health and well-being you know, well into our older life and um, this is something we can take responsibility for and really care for our brains and, and, and then know that we're going to also impact our relationships and everybody else around us. So um, that, that the whole physical, mental and spiritual aspect of mindfulness is, is very exciting. Mm-hmm. It is to me also. 
Is there any easy way to explain the spiritual component in this? I think the spiritual component, for me, the best way to explain it is this idea that we we start to hold our own experience with a sense of loving presence. And then when we can do that, you know, the whole experience of meditating does that. It connects people to... Um, a sense of, you know, for some people God, um, some people universal intelligence, whatever we call it, um, there's that connection into this sense of limitless, limitless awareness and that reduces the separation that we have in our, our kind of temptation and our tendency to view ourselves as very separate from, from everybody else. And so... Um, this, this, as a spiritual practice, mindfulness, um, you know, can, can really improve our sense of peace and our sense of well-being. Uh, and, and of course, when we're more peaceful, um, we're better people to live with, and, and we're more able to think clearly and make better decisions and be better workers and colleagues. And so, it just has a big, beautiful ripple effect. Yes, I like that—the way you talk about ripple effects. That. Um something like mindfulness starts with building a connection with yourself, but then that ripples out into your relationships with other people. Yes, Can you say, absolutely. would you say anything else about family relationships? We had one great example of a father and daughter um, experiences coming out of mindfulness. What about other relatives? What about, uh, Grandparents or aunts and uncles or in-laws. <laughs> does that come yeah. up? <laughs> yeah. uh, we don't actually go specifically into the book, but of course it does. I mean, we, 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 can, we impact all of our relationships by becoming more aware, more patient, more calm, all these lovely qualities that we're, we're talking about. And um, bringing mindfulness into our family is a lovely concept, you know, to be able to raise mindful children and to bring meditation into our families to create a space at home for meditation, you know, doing things like reducing family scheduling and busyness and um, reducing um, children's uh, use of technology so that we can actually grow kids, bring our kids up into into a world where they, they are connected to their own emotions and they're not cut off from their own emotions. To be able to teach this to children from a young age is... is um, really wonderful I think in terms of in-laws and grandparents and and, and the like well, we can use it for, for um, in the same way that we've talked about earlier managing conflict in relationships you know with in-laws and, and any kind of family conflict we can still be even if the other person doesn't know we can still be being more mindful and be practicing out the skills that come from mindfulness like listening and paying attention and being non-reactive and non-judgmental these things that start to become more automatic after we've been practicing mindfulness for some time, then that does just ripple into any of our family relationships. I love that. Non-reactive and non-judgmental. And mm. I love the notion of actually teaching your kids to meditate, having a family time for meditation instead of a family time for, I don't know, what else that families do together. <laughs> just add that to well, stuff like that. Yeah, lots of great things families do together, and it's not—it's not—it's um, not that we want to sort of be, you know, making all these these people families that are doing nothing but meditate. But it's just to bring it into family life and to bring it in as something as part, just part, just something that families do automatically and part of family life would be just wonderful. And I yes. think some families are doing it, just like schools and and universities are now introducing mindfulness into their institutions. I think that's really exciting. Okay. All right, um, we're out of time, but I do want to mention to people that if you'd like to learn more about this book that Margie Ulbrick and uh, Dr. Chambers have written, you can find it online at themindfulnessrelationshipsbook.com. Margie, thank you so much for being with us today. Is there one last thought you'd like to share or repeat? Uh, my last thought is, is one of the greatest things we can do is to remember to pause, to pause and to notice that, that mindfulness, it, it, even though it might sometimes seem a big stretch to get to 
you know, living a, a more mindful life. It's little habits and reminding ourselves just during the day, day by day, small steps, just pause, just pay attention just to what's going on in this moment now. Great. Thanks so much. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Sadly, that's wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, or co-parenting, there is a better way. Family mediation. Save time, save money, and make good plans for your children. Visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's A-P-F-M-N-E-T dot O-R-G. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. On Family Matters today, I'm talking with Dr. Deborah Zucker. She is a naturopathic physician and transformational health coach who helps conscious, compassionate people revolutionize their health by learning to love, nourish, and heal themselves on every level. Dr. Zucker is the author of The Vitality Map, a guide to deep health, joyful self-care, and resilient well-being. I'm Virginia Collin, your host here on Family Matters, and um, welcome to the show. Did I say your name correctly? Is it Zucker or Zucker? Yes, you did. Yes. Zucker, okay. <laughs> okay, super. Um, where to begin? I've just been talking with someone else about mindfulness in relationship and mindfulness in care of the self. Your book expands on that theme and goes further into the question of how people build, you know, really deep health. So let's start with um, what, what is your definition of health? What does it mean to be deeply healthy? Yeah, so basically, to me, it means connecting with, connecting with the essential relationship with our own lives and how do we nourish and support our own vitality and well-being. So it's not just about, you know, whether we're doing all the, the self-care habits that we're supposed to be doing, eating what we're supposed to be eating and doing the exercise plans and, and going to the doctor and all those things, but how do we actually turn towards ourselves with a priority to help ourselves feel as deeply healthy and alive on all levels as we can each and every day. And to me, that's, that's a really big orientation shift that most of us don't have modeled in our lives, that that's actually possible to have that be a priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's certainly true in my experience. That uh, Well, you talk about this in your book, that a lot of us uh, 
have been raised consciously or unconsciously to take care of everybody else and mm-hmm. put ourselves last, mm-hmm. which doesn't work very well. No, that's not a very sustainable pattern. And, you know, it, and it's so true of, of so many of us in our society, you know, particularly parents and and caregivers and people who are really active in, in their passions and engagement with supporting all the crazy things going on in the world and, you know, helping our human family move forward in, in proactive ways. It's There's so much energy that goes out to those around us. And, and sometimes we're the last ones to get our own care and attention. And that doesn't serve anyone, you know, when we run ourselves into the ground. And and that was definitely an impetus to write this book because I experienced that myself in my own healing journey that began at age 24 where I kind of got shocked with spiraling down into chronic fatigue when I thought I was doing what I was supposed to be doing to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As you say, um, you know, there's a lot of teaching about this is what you should eat. This is how much exercise you should get, et cetera. Um, but you have a different focus. You have a focus on being mindful, paying attention to what's going on inside yourself, that inside yourself you have good guidance for what you really need to do to support your own health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, in, in a way I, I see these as basic life skills that most of us were never taught. You know, how how do we become deeply intimate with learning to listen for that feedback that's there all the time that tells us, you know, what is actually bringing us more alive and, and what's not from everything from the foods that we're eating to how we're engaging relationally to the jobs that we're investing our life energy in to the places we're living. You know, every every single choice that we make throughout our lives is you know, supporting and nourishing our vitality, or it's actually kind of like a, a hole in the bucket that's depleting us. And and most of us never really learned to develop and cultivate that awareness to be able to listen to that and guide ourselves accordingly on all those different levels, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And and that was part of, you know, what came to me in my own healing journey was really learning how to do that for myself. And, and then through my naturopathic medicine training, I expanded on that. And, and I've been continuing to fine-tune with the clients I work with. And and, and that, you know, makes up the, the bulk of what I write about in my book is trying to create a map, a, a series of, of what I call the nine keys that that help people to learn how to cultivate those skills and awarenesses themselves. Okay. Um, let's explore that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. this, this thought occurred to me earlier today that I could use one of my habits as an example of how you might work with someone to help them develop a new attitude towards uh, managing their own health. So, mm-hmm. simple thing. I'm addicted to mint chocolate chip ice cream. I love it. I'm sure uh-huh. I eat much more than any nutritionist would recommend. If someone like me came to you with that sort of health concern. You know, I just have, I have this really bad food habit and I can't break it. How would you mm-hmm. begin to work with someone like that? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's a very common thing, right? It's like most of us have, you know, different addictive kind of patterns that, that show up that, you know, we know better on one level and I'm, I'm using better kind of loosely, but um, but we still repeat them over and over again. Like for most of us, it's not an issue of knowing what actually does support us in being healthy. It's actually um, choosing and, and cultivating that pattern in ourselves. And so for something like this with mint chocolate chip ice cream, it's like one, you know, in and of itself, having some ice cream now and then, you know, that's that's not a bad thing unless you have an air, a dairy sensitivity. Um, but it, it's more about what I heard in, in your example is more like there's a sense of, of being out of control in it, that, that somehow that it has you, that pattern has you. And so when I work with someone in that way, I mean, one, you know, I do a very in-depth um, intake process. So I, I learn a lot about, you know, the different patterns that people have in relation to to their care, the traumas from their past, the 
the things that are working for them in their lives, the things that they yearn to have different. So it's, I, I really have a, a strong background before I get into more of kind of the, the coaching on specific issues. And so then from that place, you know, one, one initial inquiry may be, you know, you, ha- you have this pattern of eating lots of ice cream. So perhaps there's something else that you're actually hungry for. Maybe it's not the ice cream itself. And, and an inquiry like that can open up a whole lot. And, and for so many of us, and I'm not saying this is true for you, this is just an example, but, you know, for so many of us, when we have um, addictive kind of patterns with food or behavior, what we're really hung- hungry for may be more about intimate connection or Maybe there's some passion that we've been denying ourselves that we're really yearning to engage with, or there's there's some sense of of sadness or isolation or or something else that's not quite in alignment in our lives. And so we may choose through a food or through a behavior pattern, even through you know things like exercise, to to numb ourselves from actually looking directly and feeling you know what's there, what's what's the real feedback that's underneath that. And that's where I really like to go with people. And obviously it takes time to, to explore that and cultivate that kind of intimacy with ourselves. And for me as a practitioner to, to help to shine light on some of those more shadowy places in ourselves, the places that we might not be fully conscious of. Cause a lot of those patterns show up when, when we're not really conscious of what's going on. And, and that's what's so confusing and, and can be, feel really disempowering and feed the, the shame and self-judgment patterns in ourselves. And um, so that's one place. And another thing that I, I really encourage <clears throat> with my clients is to take time, and this probably is similar to, to the talk you just had with your previous um, interview, is to actually take time to cultivate an awareness, like serve as the observer or witness of yourself. What, what's going on? What's the nuance? Like, can you take, you know, a few weeks to not necessarily change the habit itself, but to watch, like, when does that pattern show up for you? What happens, you know, for the hour or the day before when, when you have the urge to have some mint ice cream? And, and how does it feel as you're eating it? How does it feel afterwards? So simply gathering data and, and not rushing into needing to make a change right away because that's one of the, the things that I find happens so much in our current culture around health and self-care is, is we're all so, so hurried and trying to you know, fix the problem and change the habit that we end up in a boom and bust kind of cycle where we try something out and, and expect it to change and, and perhaps something superficially has changed, but it doesn't stick because we haven't actually addressed what's underneath it at the deeper level and taking the time to develop that observer and, and awareness and intimacy with ourselves helps to develop a strategy when we actually look to create a change that's more grounded in what's really going on. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I remember you're saying at one point in the book that when you have practiced this for quite a long time, really getting the feedback from your own body, strengthening your self-awareness and basing your health choices on that, you might get to a point where you can hear the feedback from your body when it's just a nudge. It's not a scream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And that takes time. I mean, it, it is, this is more of a long-term approach of, of creating a strong foundation and developing that with ourselves. But it's very much possible. You know, I, I know that process in myself, and I see it all the time with my clients, that we can build up those muscles of awareness so that, yeah, it doesn't need to be the full-on crisis when we get the feedback. We can hear it with the little nudge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm, I remember there's a section of the book about resilience, uh, which is maybe defined as guiding yourself toward your own flourishing in the midst of change. How do people cultivate resilience of that sort? Yeah, well, resilience for me, I mean, I'll just expand a little bit on what you just said, is, is a recognition that we're in constant change in our lives. And, and so, 
it is, it's another level of building up the muscles of our own self-awareness where we recognize, like, you know, we might have a habit or a particular thing that works for us that makes us feel really alive and, and energized in our lives, but then something happens, like a loved one dies or a we lose a job or we move to a different part of the country and suddenly the ground's out from underneath us and, and everything feels wobbly again. And so when we're talking about cultivating resilience, it's, it's really about how do you, one, become you know, more adept at, at you know, what we were just speaking to, that self-intimacy and the awareness to, to catch things before they spiral totally out of control. And two, once you catch things, like how do you know what to do to change it. And, and for me, this is where we have a bit of an overlap in, in what we often think of as, as health and self-care these days, where it's, you know, it's about a particular diet or it's about, you know, a particular, um, you know, set of um, instructions around strength training or, you know, we, we all, we're, we're flooded with all the different studies and ideas of things we're supposed to be doing. But the resilience part is having the discernment in ourselves around which of those actually is a good fit for us and then being proactive around learning the skills. So, you know, as your last interviewee, you know, was speaking to, it may be about cultivating mindfulness and or using biofeedback to understand and explore how we can, in the moment, shift our physiology to one from a really stressful, you know, fight or flight kind of state to one where our, our nervous system is relaxed and calm and able to be clear and discerning, you know, with how we're, we're responding with what's going on. Um, or it may be, um, you know, uh, practicing a particular kind of um, martial art, or it may be practicing, you know, joining a sports team, or, you know, each of us, like, there's so many different ways that we can cultivate and nourish the different aspects of our physical, mental, emotional, spiritual selves. And the resilience part is knowing which of those actually works well for us. Which is it that brings us uniquely alive and excited rather than taking on someone else's um, protocol and trying to make ourselves do it, which doesn't tend to stick too long if we're not really <laughs> fully invested uh, mm-hmm. versus like following our own, our own impulse and exploring the things that really excite us. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks so much. We're going to take a break now, and I will be back with Dr. Deborah Zucker in a moment. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, Visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, 
please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, Back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin talking today with Dr. Deborah Zucker. She is a naturopathic physician and transformational health coach. She has actually a doctorate in naturopathic medicine from Bastyr University, where she's also served as adjunct faculty. And she is, as I mentioned before, the author of The Vitality Map, A Guide to Deep Health, Joyful Self-Care, and Resilient Well-Being. Uh, if you want to find out more about Dr. Zucker and the coaching programs she offers, you can find that online at vitalmedicine.com. So, Dr. Zucker, um, I want to steer us now towards a discussion of shadows. That was a part of your book that I found very meaningful. Um, so, it, I guess we start with the notion that some people are trying to do what they know they should do to become healthy, but they sabotage themselves. And then when you explore that, you find shadow parts of the person. Just tell me more about that. Yes, it's, I imagine most of us actually have experienced this where, you know, we have all of these intentions to support our, ourselves and our health journey and, and somehow we keep sabotaging or avoiding and it can be so confusing because the intentions can be right there and we can know what we want to do and yet we can't actually step fully into it and make it happen or if we do, you know, it might spiral out of control pretty quickly. And, and for me, this, this is a really significant topic around, around shadow work in our health and self-care journey. I think a lot of times when people think of shadow work, it's about, you know, going to a therapist. And when I'm saying, th- when I'm saying shadow, I'm, I'm meaning those aspects of ourselves that we're unconscious to you know, that are kind of running the show. You know, I, I use the metaphor in my book of, of the ocean current. So it's like, you know, we can be swimming as hard as we want in one direction, but if the ocean currents are strong and, and they're, they're flowing, we can be swept right down the beach. And, um, and it's the same with our shadows. If, if we're not conscious and aware of, of what's underneath the surface that's actually motivating us or, or guiding our choices, we can try all we want to make the, the health changes and it just doesn't happen. And this is a huge, I, I see it as a huge missing piece in, in our realm of, of common health care out there. And, you know, even amongst folks who are exploring different kinds of mental, emotional healing with therapists, you know, they may have a session with someone and have a big breakthrough around, you know, some trauma in their life or something going on relationally right now or in their families. And then, you know, as you were speaking to earlier, it's like then they may, you know, go home and binge on their favorite ice cream or, you know, like do something else that might kind of numb um, the intensity of their feelings. And, and, you know, I certainly know that in my own life. I've, I've experienced that in various ways. And, and it's, and so the key here is, is how do we disentangle from, from that pattern? Not that eating ice cream is, is wrong, but how do we disentangle from the ways in which we may do harm to ourselves? And, and the shadow work is difficult because, you know, we can't see what we can't see. And, and so this is where the support of others can be really, really helpful. I do offer in my book some exercises and guidance on how to begin the shadow work on our own to begin to uncover, like, what might be going on or, or where it is, you know, that we get triggered into avoidance and self-sabotage patterns. But, but really having someone else help us to see what we can't see is, is generally um, needed in, in, this, um, in this engagement for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, a place in that section of the book where you talked about someone you had worked with who um, became aware of uh, parts of herself that she had kind of disowned because in, in the way her parents raised her, those were not ex- it was not acceptable to be that way and probably wasn't safe to be that way. And then right. she realized she didn't need to be angry at herself for being that way or for acting that way. She, it made more sense to appreciate that she had found a way to survive and learn how right. to love that part of herself instead of trying to hate it and cut it off. Right. 
Yeah, and it's it's such tender territory when we begin to uncover this, you know, when we begin to see that, oh, you know, I've had these patterns of, um, you know, being kind of a workaholic and, and you know, seeing that it's like that keeps happening even though I know I need more rest and I know I need to sleep more and, and do other things that are fun and playful and engage with my family more. You know, it's like, but we may continue in those patterns and, and you know, then we begin to... Um, have the courage and have the support to look underneath the pattern and, and what's really going on, you know, and, and maybe, you know, that was someone who, um, you know, had a particular wounding or modeling when, when they were younger, you know, that they, they weren't smart enough or they didn't try hard enough. So then as an adult, you know, they like worked really hard to kind of, you know, compensate for that or, or maybe, you know, they were, abused or, or, you know, neglected or not seen in some ways, you know, when they were younger or even in a current relationship. And, and that can come out kind of sideways and, and compensating or, or focusing our energy elsewhere. And we're, again, it's, you know, this area, we're often not conscious that we're even doing it until we pause and recognize that, okay, this pattern has a hold of me. So something's going on. And, and it's often, you know, in that mental, emotional, spiritual realm that there's a misalignment or a wounding or something okay. that's calling our attention. Okay. If we have just a few minutes left, tell me about the inner mama bear. I love that. Mm. <laughs> I love that too. Yeah, I, it feels really dear to my heart. You know, that's so that's that's a metaphor that I use to acknowledge that one of one of the more foundational shifts that that I see is is essential to this path of of vitality. You know, that I I outline in my book is that we actually learn to turn towards ourselves with loving care, with kindness, with compassion, that that's actually the essential ground of self-care. It's not the list of all the habits and to-dos. And so the inner mama bear for me is this really visceral representation of that. Can we adopt that voice, that voice inside of us that really stands for us as a mama bear does for her cubs? Like, how can we have our own back and have that fierce love that, you know, gives us courage when, when things are scary or when it's vulnerable or tender and then also can wrap us up, you know, in a big, big loving hug and embrace when it's tender and vulnerable and, and, you know, and, and we're feeling shame or, you know, we're, we're struggling in some aspect. Aspect of, of how we're caring for ourselves and and how do we navigate our lives in that way where, where love for ourselves is, is really the ground of how we move and and that that's, you know, that care for ourselves at that level allows us then to open our hearts and, and have the energy and, and compassion then to extend to other people in a sustainable way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to be sure also that we mention um, one of the recommendations you make in the book, uh, which is to relax into an attitude of curiosity, experiment with what's going to feel right to actually make your health stronger. Um, I just love that, that they're, you know, instead of saying, oh, I tried to stick to this exercise program and I failed, I couldn't do it. You say, it wasn't a failure, that was feedback. Now let's try a different experiment. (laughs) You take it from there. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's so amazing how serious and how heavy, you know, caring for ourselves and our health journeys have become for so many of us. And yes, I, I really try and bring in that playful, curious, experimental attitude in my book. One of, the, one of the keys is devoted to that, but it really weaves throughout the whole approach that, yes, like there really are no mistakes. We get to learn and we get to kind of dance with the nuance of, of our ever-changing lives, you know, and, and try things out and see what happens and, and use our own feedback of what brings me alive as, as our guide. And, and to know, you know, sometimes we need to try things out for a little bit longer to get that feedback, but it's all, you know, it's all in support of, of our conscious journey of, of really seeing ourselves as our own best health guide and that, you know, it's not about the list of all the things we're supposed to be doing. It's, it's really about how can we nourish and, and guide ourselves in loving, gentle, playful, curious ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have about a minute left. Is there anything you'd like to add or elaborate on or just repeat for emphasis? 
Yes, I, I guess for me, you know, all of this really, it comes back to how can we each drop into a relationship with our own lives that are, are really honoring, you know, and honoring of the uniqueness of who we are and that we, each of us really matters and that our expression in the world, you know, as parents, as caregivers, as activists, as teachers, whatever our role may, might be out there in the world, that, that we each matter and so that we heal that split between care for others and care for ourselves and and learn how to deeply love and nourish and, and guide ourselves to a level of vitality that I think these days most of us never come to know, but that really is our birthright. And and it is possible, and, and I, I really wish that for all of us, that, that we can that we can come out of, of that, that dichotomy that's so common where, you know, we need to prioritize others over ourselves but instead see that it's one and the same, that, that we really do um, need to honor this unique life that we're each here to steward and, and guide to our own flourishing. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to wrap up, up now. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Virginia. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.